This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're back with Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episode 1, Fresh Hell. Back, fellow Penny Faithful. This is TV Podcast Industries, and we're watching Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episode 1, Fresh Hell. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings or Nightcomers. Uh, I am one of your other hosts, John. And rounding up the group, I am your third host, Ray. Welcome back, Ray. Good stuff. I like, I like <laughs> having someone rounding out the group again. It's always good. Yes, exactly. A triangle. Which can then become a pentagram or something <laughs> uh, to to feed into this witchy kind of ness that is season two, uh, Penny Dreadful. Yeah, yeah, because you can't round out a triangle, John. It's it's mathematically impossible. <laughs> no, I know it's yeah, exactly. Okay, a line. Right. <laughs> well, that's we... just two. Anyway, <laughs> forget it. Forget it. We're, well, we are very happy to have Ray back with us. We had the last four episodes without him, so uh, delighted to have you back for season two. Uh, did you enjoy the ending of season one? How about that? How about we start there? Oh, it's just, um, yeah, everything about this show from the first time watching it to rewatching it, it exceeds expectations again. Mm. So, no, no, I'm really enjoying it. I re- really enjoying the, the rewatch as well and looking forward to season two because it's a very different beast absolutely really is and uh that this um i think i have in my notes that it's just a lot creepier in season two than season one the (laughs) idea that we're getting the story of the witches this time as opposed to last time where we got the vampires where the villains of the piece and were only seen when they were attacking our main heroes whereas this time we actually get what's going on in the minds of of the villains this season so yeah, I obviously tried to shut out um this this season for sure, given the creepiness of it, because uh my memory did not serve me well at all. Um there were things that I thought happened over a few episodes where it was just self-contained, such as episode three. Um I certainly didn't think the um which is one of my points later on, the dollhouse of hell mm-hmm. uh, came in it so early, uh, as well as the baby autopsy, so to speak. <laughs> um so I was just like, Oh my good God. <laughs> so yeah. we have uh rabbits rabbit feet all around the house. We have done we, we've put a sort of a, a salt all around the perimeter of the property just to make sure that we are safe. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Supernatural, for teaching us all of those tricks exactly. to protect our home. Yes. Without Supernatural, yeah. we would be dead. <laughs> I am a man of science. I, I kid you not, yeah. fellow uh, Darklings. Uh, I really am. But yes, this is a creepy show fest, definitely. Yeah. But I'm sure by now, even as a man of science, you could probably agree with Victor. If you've seen this much stuff happen to you in your life, you're going to agree <laughs> that a lot is able to happen. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Right. As we've been doing with all of our podcasts on Paddy Dreadful, we're going to kick straight into it. These are shorter podcasts. We will probably talk for a lot longer when we get to uh, season four of Penny Dreadful, Penny Dreadful City of Angels, when it starts coming out from April 26th. We'll probably have full hour long or more episodes about each episode of that show. But as we're doing a rewatch and as you've all seen the episodes before, we're going to just pick out our main points, the things that we're interested in talking about from each of the episodes. These episodes are being released first on Patreon. We're releasing each individual episode over there and then releasing the combined episodes on our main feed at tvpodcastindustries.com. But let's get into this episode, Season 2, Episode 1, Fresh Hell. This episode was directed by James Halls. He directed some of the episodes in Season 1, also directed some episodes of the wonderful Black Mirror. Go out and check those out. He loves directing the dark TV shows, obviously. Uh, Once again, starting off Season 2, showrunner John Logan is writing uh, each of the episodes this time again. It's always good having the team back together. It's kind of his vision, so uh, Mm -hmm. seeing what he's taking from Season 1 and bringing into Season 2 is definitely... One of the fun aspects of the show, isn't it? Yeah, you definitely get the continuity, certainly in the mm-hmm. writing here. Um, and, and even with the aesthetic, it, it is, it's really nicely played. Um, so yeah, it's good to, it's good that they had his vision for season two, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I think it's so important to have such a consistency in the continuity because the things that John Logan writes throughout season two, some of it references season one as well. And, and you, you don't have that kind of, um, integrating uh, information between the two seasons. If you if you had a different showrunner or if you had a different writer, so the, the idea that he's got a, a vision that mm-hmm. he wants to portray and he has this kind of holistic view of how he wants to take the where he wants to take the show, I think it's a it's a really good thing. It, it just ensures that there's a, a like a a tight kind of um, storytelling to it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. John, do you want to tell us about the storytelling? Tell us what the summary of episode one of season two is. Sure. At the Mariners Inn, Ethan Chandler awakes from another of his blackouts to find those that threatened him are all dead. He joins Vanessa for a carriage ride to tell her about the blackouts. He has no idea what happens to him and what he normally finds when he awakens. He's decided to leave London, but before he can even finish his story, the carriage is attacked by three female creatures. Vanessa is clearly their target, but she and Ethan survive with only minor injuries. Sir Malcolm Murray returns, and she tells him the creatures spoke the Verbis Diablo, a dead language known as the Word of the Devil, which according to legend is the language Adam spoke in Eden after the devil tempted him. Vanessa says the women were nightcomers, witches. Meanwhile, Dr. Frankenstein is now ready to reanimate Brona Croft and needs only for the weather to cooperate. The creature finds a job at Putney's Family Waxworks, where the owner, Oscar Putney, is working on his latest tableau, The Mariners in Massacre. Elsewhere, Police Inspector Rusk investigates the murders at the inn. We've all had that moment where you're waiting on the weather to cooperate with your <laughs> random master plan. <laughs> not Absolutely. Usually, not usually waiting on the lightning to reanimate a corpse, though. Certainly at the moment exactly. where we are having storm after storm mm-hmm. rolling in from the Atlantic. Yes. Uh, was it Storm oh. Jorge at the moment? Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. Plenty of opportunities there to reanimate. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> if rain reanimates uh, creatures, then we would reanimate <laughs> yeah. an army by now. Wind, rain, <laughs> more rain, even more wind. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's get into our big moments from the episode. John, what's your big moment from season two, episode one? 
Uh, well, I'm taking it um, really from, I suppose, where season one left off, and that is the massacre at uh, the Mariner Inn. Mm-hmm. Um, but importantly, I suppose here that there um, is a survivor. You know, we we definitely saw on the um, with the the mother and child, uh, as well as the the um, lamplighter and the lady in the park. That you know, no one survived. Um, effectively ethan's uh turn uh in the moonlight it's so and good to be able to talk about exactly being a werewolf now, um, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. but in this case i suppose just because there were so many p- people getting pissed up in the inn <laughs> that uh he didn't really do quite a good job mm. of, of it so there is a survivor and we do learn later that it is one of the pinkerton agents who was after ethan uh mr roper mm. But I think importantly, what it comes out with this is maybe that there's a bit more focus on on Ethan, both in terms of the, the, his story, but also, um, you know, within the episodes, we have a new detective uh, on the case, uh, an Inspector Rusk, mm-hmm. who has replaced the the previous detective Goldsworthy, and um, who kind of seemed to be jaded by it. Really, there was that moment in season one where he was um, visited by some Malcolm, and it, I suppose after. The Jack the Ripper cases and just the general swigging of gin and general mayhem from the Industrial Revolution in mm-hmm. London that he kind of needs to retire at this stage. <laughs> but this this new detective, um, the Inspector Rusk, is certainly uh, keener, shall we say. He oh, yeah. seems a little more incisive in, in where this investigation is going to take him mm-hmm. um and uh, i i quite like that i mean certainly we see the survivor on the hospital bed pretty um beaten up mm-hmm. or should i say scratched up um and it, it's kind of it's one of those normal things it's that matter of time until he recovers and um you know until they can have a worthwhile conversation uh, and chat mm-hmm. you know they have a lot to talk about yeah. so um i like that but i i think as well the focus is that you know we see that there is um the public have have taken this gory event uh, into their imagination whether it's through the newspapers the penny dreadfuls um you know it's kind of a la jack ripper um there's nothing that sells more than gore and gossip in mm-hmm. that sense and, and here um you know the focus of of um i suppose just the public imagination and the press um and and to an extent we we see this then through um the Putney's family waxworks were Mr. Putney, Oscar Putney wants to kind of recreate um, the, the massacre uh, because he sees this as his ticket to um, increase profits to compete with that blasted um, other waxwork house of <laughs> Madame Tussauds. Yes. Um, so we know which one uh, sort of won out in the end. Well, I don't, I don't we... think Putney's still exist, to be honest. <laughs> I was wondering, you've been to London a few times as well. Um, is this something around the London Dungeon? Because we have a, a, oh, a place maybe. in London that, yeah. that is kind of the House of Horrors, yeah. which is very like mm. uh, Madame Tussauds, but focuses just on murders and deaths and all that kind of stuff which has been around for hundreds of years or well a hundred years as well so yeah maybe um, maybe that is if the putney family lost out and it just went to uh putney bridge is yeah maybe maybe i i don't know but certainly um maybe not quite as a recognizable brand as as madame two swords (laughs) and so yeah the 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 french flair worn out really Mm -hmm. um i suppose in that one (laughs) yeah um but it, it, you know they're, they're recreating this and I, I think the other nice thing about this is that 
Caliban is inserted into um, the Putney's waxworks. And this is where he looks to get a job. This is kind mm. of his replacement for the theatre. Um, and and it, I think it marries quite well. I mean, I just keep thinking of the horror, The House of Wax. Mm. Um, so to me, this is kind of... This makes sense that Caliban is going to a, another kind of slightly um, kooky um, vocation mm. for for himself. He can he can work down in the basement, away from prying eyes, creating these the, these figures out out of wax. Um, we now have another name for Caliban as well. So we've mm. had Demon mm. Monster Caliban, and now it's John Clare. Yes. Chosen by himself. Yeah, chosen by himself. So just fellow Darklings, if we interchange John Clerk, Caliban, Demon, Monster, it's ultimately probably the same character. Mm -hmm. Do we know where, I mean, did I miss it, where he chose John Clare from? Was that just plucked out of nowhere or were this, was that a reference to something? It seemed to be on the spot because yeah. Um, yeah, Oscar's yeah. wife, uh, who kind of, keeps the books and seems a pretty hardy soul. Um, I thought she was the one that yep. wore the pants, actually. Mm -hmm. But then he, he does kind of, mm. um, he does sort of reassert his, um, shall we say, his, his patriarchy on her. Uh, but certainly it seemed like it was straight offhand because he had to give yeah. her a name. And she may have just laughed yeah. at Caliban. Not, not too much to talk about later episodes, but there is a moment where he says his name for the first time to Victor Frankenstein, and Frankenstein just rolls his eyes to heaven <laughs> because you know it's not as it's not as great a name as he would have given to his creation. No. Uh, you know, or even Proteus. Yeah. You know, Proteus's name chosen from uh, from Shakespeare was a, a great moment for Victor Frankenstein, yeah. where he gets that uh, that wonderful name for his new creation, and it's like yeah. John. Um, what's another word? Claire. Yeah. Claire. John Claire. I'll yeah. go for that. <laughs> Well, John is a great name. John is a wonderful yeah, name. Yeah, so very strong. Uh, it is a it's not overused name, at all. Though. Yeah, it's not overused at all. <laughs> I think it's I think it's fallen massively out of fashion. But anyway, not. there you very go. Very fashionable in our podcast. One third of our hosts are called John. Mm. <laughs> exactly. I, I was just thinking. I was wondering if there was like a name tag that said John, or if there was like an eclair on the desk or something. That <laughs> kind of put things together. I have like, no oh, hey, John Clare. <laughs> I think yeah. I, he just had to pluck it uh, right there. Mm. I think, but uh, I, I do think. I and I wonder if um, because Ethan does also take note of this new. Um, exhibition that is going to take place at the Putney's uh, Family Waxworks. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder to what extent Caliban will become more integral to that company uh, of Sir Malcolm. Mm. Um, certainly because as well, uh, we do see Caliban meeting Vanessa as well in another one of the episodes. I know it's yeah, episode yeah. two, but, <laughs> we'll um, talk about it, yeah. yeah, but it, it it's, yeah. he seems like there's a few more possible connections mm -hmm. here, uh, to this company, not just through Victor, where he, he might become a, a part of, of Sir Malcolm's band of merry misfits. Um, so the reason why I brought this up is, is mainly because, I suppose the point of view from Ethan, it, it's changed from season one and we are starting to see him as part of uh, the storyline in the same way as you described the witches as opposed to the vampire. Yeah. You know, it, it's not yeah. a sort of peripheral transient element. It, it, it's becoming more and um, sort of in, interjected into the story, which I think is a good thing because he's done this massacre. And there has to be some kind of consequence. And I, I, I think yeah. that the urgency of the new inspector also seems nice. You know, he yeah. is 
absolutely focused on getting whoever has done this, and I kind of like that. Yeah, and and you know, I suppose it's really important for the Ethan character in season one and the previous parts. We talked about the fact that Ethan was the voice of the viewer; he was the eyes of the viewer, excuse me, throughout the series, and didn't have much of his own storyline as you would expect for one of the three major characters of the show or the four major characters of the show. Um, towards the end of the season, it starts to build up to this idea that he is uh, this werewolf that can eventually just come out and kill everything yeah. around him. Um, what I did like about how this was introduced is remember there was only two people in that room that Ethan wanted to actually kill which were the Pinkertons that were after them and one of them still alive so he's not a very effective weapon as such you know (laughs) he has killed everybody in that room except for one of the only two people that can identify him so uh, so I suppose he's not in control is what it tells you about uh, about the werewolf he's he is able to turn into this uh, this creature this beast but unlike the vampires or unlike the witches He's, he's out of control. He's slaughtering everything around him, but not getting the one thing that he wanted to get. So. Yeah, he, he's, um, I think, and you see that with his reactions and the way he, he talks to Vanessa in the carriage as well about how he's got no control, how he's got these inner demons himself. And, mm-hmm. and he's to a point, I mean, just as scared as everyone else uh, who's, you know, walking around London with these murders happening around. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very much so. Very much I liken him to, you know, say like the Incredible Hulk or, or Dr. Mm-hmm. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde, how this other physical being where he blacks out and he's yeah. it's a totally different entity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, just going further to your point as well, uh, the, the the wolf is totally out of the bag now from season one, you know. Yeah. So I think the only way to progress Ethan as a character would be to, okay, establish that, which they did, which John Logan did perfectly mm-hmm. in the end of season one. And then, okay, so where do we take it now? And so I, I think it's really great. You have this added dynamic of in- Inspector Rusk with mm-hmm, this yeah. kind of uh, forensic investigation now, which is, is a different part of, of, of the Penny Dreadful storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's very interesting. He's a very interesting character, a very intense yeah. kind of guy. He is. <laughs> very. Yes. Yeah. But he, he's very good as well. And, and tying it also with the horror elements, um, even just, just the verbal descriptions of this guy hasn't got much of a face anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he won't be able to talk to you till maybe tomorrow because he's so disfigured. Yeah. Yeah. And then seeing all the bandages, that itself has a very horror element to it and a very kind of, oh, I don't know if I can, yeah. you know, yeah. what is under it? What, what is under those bandages? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I like the, cool. I like the picture of Dorian Gray. I actually don't want to see what's under those bandages, <laughs> yeah. I must admit. <laughs> I, I think one of the interesting things of Rusk as well is that, um, he has that conversation with, I think, the owner of the inn who wants to kind of sell it off as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they want to put up tenements and he just goes more brick and soon there will be no wooden buildings left you know wood has its character and tells a story Mm -hmm. and it seems like he also has this kind of longing for dare i say the old ways not to say that he's he's a a supernatural being or he's got any elements like that certainly i don't get that at the moment i think he's very much about as you say this modern um detective um using the latest tools available to him mm-hmm. uh sort of in victorian britain but um there's there's some kind of thing that he, he still looks back or he you know his terms of reference are still as as a kid you know the old ways okay. or, to some extent or there's a there's a nostalgia there to that way and yeah. um, that even though he's bought in to 
Um, because he, you know, he he says that he has come from the army. It looks he he used to be a, a soldier. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he he's he's bought into new technologies like repeater rifles or all this kind of stuff. But there's there's something there that he may be a bit more open to um the possibility of what happened in the Mariners Inn rather than just simply a straightforward. Um, serial killer, like I think Detective Goldsworthy would have been thinking. Right, right. I, I just took it that he had this concept of uh, of Wood leaving behind something for him to investigate. So yeah. he's a for- forensic detective, so yeah. Brick doesn't have the same kind of investigative abilities for him, I suppose. But I think he's more open. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Just quickly as well, with that point, I, I love it as well. It's a good point, John. Um, but it's also, for me, it was more like a nostalgia within the nostalgia. Mm-hmm, I mean, yeah. so we're watching this and everything's so, so dated, so yeah. outdated. And he's coming in and he's saying, Oh, brick, that's <laughs> yeah. so new and modern. You know, mm-hmm. why aren't they using the, the tried and true method of, of timber? And so we're, we're thinking, Wow, this is, he's really got the old traditional ways. Yeah. yeah so I, I love that layer of, um, of us being kind of, Detached even further mm-hmm. from him because he is so set in a, in a traditional sense, whilst we are way modern. So, <laughs> yeah, where's the steel and glass? Exactly, exactly. Mm. <laughs> well, let's move on to our next big point for the episode. Ray, do you want to kick us off with your one? Yeah, um, look, I took a big juicy one here. I um, <laughs> I went for the the introduction of the new big bads, the the witches. I call them in the notes the witches' coven. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's obviously a group of them. We get the introduction to them not only uh, visually, aesthetically, which is truly terrifying, and the really? way they move is all very um, supernatural. But we get a bit more of the back, a little bit more, sorry, of the back history to them, mm-hmm. um, and establishing them. I guess they're, they're established a little bit more than, um, than what the vampires were initially in, in season one. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different take. Um, I was about to mention also as well, between season one and season two, there's always uh, a risk of not living up to the, the standards of the first season because, you know, generally they'll pick the best villain, you Absolutely. know, and it'd be the vampires. So how can we top that? Mm-hmm. And and I feel they're they're doing a really good job um, in season one in establishing the, the witches because number one they just look as scary as hell. Absolutely, um, they're talking <laughs> yeah. in a devil tongue in the verbus diablo. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the interaction with Vanessa. So again, there's an immediate connection. I love that bit where she, similar to season one, where she stands down that creature. Mm-hmm. She starts speaking in the verbus diablo. And she freaks out one of the witches. Yeah. And so they, they kind of leave. So it's again, what is this mystery with Vanessa? What, mm-hmm. you know, how is she connected with, with them? Um, I, yeah. So it's, it's basically that as well as later on in the episode, we get introduced to how should we call her? I mean, Madame Carly, she mm-hmm. was in, in the first season. Yeah. Um, she's referenced as Mrs. Poole. Yeah. Now, but she's definitely like the head of the, the witches yeah. coven, it seems. Uh, the introduction of her in, in that bloodbath, um, uh, <laughs> with the, the dead, I don't know, would have been maybe her daughter or, or some sacrifice or offering mm-hmm. in the, in the front. Again, really does set the tone for these. I mean, yeah. Looking at it. And and in that scene with her and her daughters, mm-hmm. um, they are really, 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 really evil. They really yeah. absolutely are. Yeah, like they really do set a more um, yeah. sinister tone with the you know the gothic villa, 
um as you say the, the bathing in blood of mm-hmm. of a victim uh, and also mm-hmm. the the fireplace made with with bones or or, or the yeah. bone decorations the skeleton decorations mm-hmm. um it, yeah it's really weird it's funny uh derek and i went to rome and we went into a capuchin church in, in rome where they also made literally everything in mm-hmm. in the crypt out of bones um where it was like the altars were made out of bones the light sockets were all the decoration uh the the ceiling freezes and it was just like so okay, these are witches one step removed from mm-hmm. monks, effectively, yeah. uh, or the Capuchin <laughs> monk order. Um, and they're made they're made of the bones of former Capuchin monks. Yeah, so that's, exactly. That's what happens to well, you when you die. We'll make an altar out of you, kind of thing. I don't know whether I'd sign up for that. Uh, and and it's it's kind of that thing, I suppose. You know, you you kind of think, oh my goodness, this is so, um, this is so outrageous, maybe, or you go, um. This, this is, you know, someone's taking this too far. And yet in, in the real world, fellow darklings, um, and, uh, penny faithful, uh, there are places where this kind of stuff is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about it. Um, which is most creepy is that it's, it's not, um, too far, too far from, from reality. Yeah. Um, mm. I think as well, Helen McCrory, um, I just love her yeah. in, in this season. The, the power that she exudes as this head witch is, is just, uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I do like her little sort of deadly ring, uh, that she puts to use on yeah. her failed daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, certainly that's, that, that's pretty cool. I think they've all got them probably, but, uh, yeah, it's a fairly, uh, kind of almost like an assassin's weapon. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, she, she, she's kind of this beautiful, um, flower that sort of distracts you. And then the sting of the thorn comes out with a, a wave of the hand, uh, yeah. it is really, really nice. I, um, I truly get the feeling that after seeing her performance as Madame Kelly in episode two of, uh, of season one, they kind of went, if we get a second season, she's going to become a major character because <laughs> there's only one more scene that we see that character in. And it's, it's at the end of, uh, at the end of season one where she meets Malcolm and introduces herself again as Evelyn Poole and that the whole Madame Callie persona is just something that she does to earn a bit, a little bit of cash because that's what people expect from her kind of thing. Um, but actually Evelyn Poole has a much, deeper and more rich history of this show. So uh, introducing at the mm. start of season two as being a much more evil character than we had possibly expected from that little bit of interaction. We knew there was something sinister about her when she introduced herself to Malcolm in that um, supposedly uh, chance encounter that she had with him in season one, because <laughs> she kind of looks after him going, I'll see you again kind of thing. So, yeah, um, so nice yeah. how they've built her into this character. Yeah. Um, I, I think what's kind of good as well is there's all, you, you know, you get that sense of the connection. And I, I do like the fact that Vanessa's like genuinely a little freaked out mm-hmm. by the, yeah. the sense that she is getting. You know, she gets in the park where you see Madame Carly sort of directing enchantments towards her. Um, and you know, she, she's frightened. Um, and, uh, I, I like that conversation that she has with Sembene, uh, where she asks, do you believe that the past can return? And he just is like, I believe it never leaves us. It's who we are. And of course, we see that in episode three, then just that connection. And um, I suppose with this coven, although she doesn't know that yet. Um, so I, I like the fact that this is kind of really uh, freaked her out mm-hmm. uh, from her past mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of you know it's reignited her 
being able to speak the um verbis diablo as well um that it, it's kind of almost taking control of her a bit all these things are kind of automatically kind of coming out from mm-hmm. her and i i think in the carriage it kind of startles one of those night comers as well and um, where they they're like oh she's speaking to us wow um yeah. you know finally i can have a conversation in my own tongue <laughs> uh without not just with my sisters kind of thing <laughs> want to go for a coffee vanessa <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um yeah and and also as well the the tying in with with the religion as well mm-hmm. to give in a, a bit of ground uh, to grounding it a little yeah. in the sense that um i love the the fact that you see the witches with, uh, is it the devil's claw? The marks of the devil on them mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Because, yeah. And so that ties in with, with Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also the, yeah, the verbus diablo, which was a, a corruption of the angelic speech. So it, it all talks about that and links it to, you know, the angels and devils. Yeah. Um, yeah. is, is very cool indeed. Um, at the, at the end, and it, we also know that, you know, they are witches and they do dabble in stuff, but they're not just like, um, stirring a cauldron and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and cackling away. There's a lot more to them and, and they serve a master, right? And so we're, we're getting a sense yeah. of a, an even more evil master, even more so than, you know, in season one. This is mm-hmm. like Lucifer himself. This is the devil. So you can't get any more, uh, evil than that. Absolutely. There is part of me that wishes they were just stirring a cauldron, to be honest, because yeah, they, they are a kind of, um, level 11 in terms of freakishness mm-hmm. um for sure yeah on the verbus diablo as well ray i like i really like the end of this episode where mm. you have vanessa praying in latin to the cross mm-hmm. with the candles um as she's kind of thumbing a, a bloody scorpion sort of image on the floor mm-hmm. um and sort of counter to that you have uh madam carly or or Evelyn Poole, um, giving her own prayer to Lucifer as opposed to God in the Verbus Diablo. I thought mm-hmm. that was a uh, really nice touch. You got the sense that somewhere, probably over Hyde Park, that these this mystical energy was battling in terms of the force of their prayers or something. Oh, I, think, yeah, I thought it like was that. quite good. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest as well, I had to smirk a little at Evelyn Poole when she was chanting mm-hmm. um just when her eyes kind of rolled back and she kind of went cross-eyed mm-hmm. uh, it did to me it looked a little <laughs> funny <laughs> it kind of broke the tension a little um a little. but i mean of course you know the effect the overall effect was there and yeah. what she was doing and a very gr- a good ending as well mm-hmm. similar yeah yeah um one thing i will say about the carriage scene and similar to yourself right there's a there's a moment when um when ethan and uh, vanessa are having their conversation in the carriage and they hop in and they go for a drive around the city of uh of london um as we talked about before this is filmed in dublin mostly in dublin castle which is a very small cobbled area of dublin and i was kind of wondering what are they going to do here because they can't go very far because <laughs> you know it's only like you know a small square in in the center of the city that has a couple streets so i was looking at the back honestly i was a little bit distracted I I was looking at the back while they were having this conversation oh. and I was going, oh, they're going to they're going to do that green screeny thing where they have some background streets of London projected in the background as the carriage is going on. 
So because of that, when the attack happened, I did jump quite a, quite a sizably off the couch when the attack <laughs> happened because I wasn't prepared for it at all. I thought this was going to be an exposition scene to set up season one, season two as the witches attack, destroy the carriage. And then we have that scene afterwards where, they're, where they get outside and see the slaughtered horse and slaughtered driver on the ground. It was shocking and yeah. fantastically done to just be distracted by a moment of exposition and then have the, the slaughter going on outside. Really good. And they they also um, the the nightcomers have the reverse Jim Carrey um, superpower from Bruce <laughs> Almighty, where instead of sort of going back and getting undressed, mm-hmm. they actually can wear anything they want. Um, so they they start off naked, and their mm-hmm. clothes kind of form around them. Oh, like, nice. yeah. I like it. I also like they can kind of appear however they want to. I think that's a really cool, uh, really cool mm, superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's close out with uh, the big moments for season two, episode one, with probably another one of the biggest moments from the episode. There was actually three main points, which just really works well for these episodes where there's three of us on board. Because uh, the final big moment is Victor bringing back Brona. Um, you know, Brona is one of the characters that we all loved in season one. I think I can easily say that she's a, a great character, uh, played by Billy Piper, uh, with a very tragic story as she, as she dies at the end or is murdered by Victor to be brought back for, to fulfill his promise to Caliban of, of creating his bride. And um, what I love about this is the twist in it, which is that Victor is possibly not bringing her back for Caliban. He is possibly bringing him, her back for himself in some ways. There are some very creepy moments as he talks to the corpse Ugh. of Rona, saying, I'm going to really miss these conversations that I'm having. Um, this is not a dialogue. Yes. It's a bit of a monologue from you, Victor, talking to the dead body <laughs> yeah. of a victim. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some very creepy t- moments as he as he touches her body, as he's uh, waiting yeah. for the time when the weather's going to be right to bring her back alive. Um I guess we're going to be sending these two characters on a collision course, Victor and uh, and Caliban, uh, over the heart of uh, of Brona, I suppose, as we uh, as we go on through these episodes, because um, it seems like he may not want to give her up. Um, I think there's a mention in season one from uh, from one of the characters, Vanessa. I think mentions that she thinks that he's uh, he's a virgin, that he's uh, never had a lover before, and in this season, it feels like he is kind of transferring that. Uh, emotion a little bit towards this um, innate body that isn't able to have have any kind of dialogue with him that is only there to serve whatever purpose he is trying to put into it, I suppose. Is that a way to, to describe it? He just seems very, very creepy about this relationship he's having yeah. with the corpse. Um, but it is quite a big moment. I mean, and just the fact as well that he's the one that killed killed her, mm-hmm. like yeah. Brian Croft, and so he's found this attraction in her dead corpse now. Yeah, and, and and I guess it's that power thing as well of he's actually bringing her back. So that might be all kind of wrapped around this idea of this infatuation with her, and mm-hmm. and also this opportunity for him to explore this side as you as you mentioned he is a virgin and uh he has this kind of budding attraction towards her mm-hmm. uh, but very oh, i'll put it in these notes as well very very creepy yeah. indeed uh, yeah. it's a very i don't know it's a it's a a little bit of a swerve for his character he's always been mm. a little um unstable like in in yeah. season one uh but this kind of really takes it further very much so, very much yeah. so. I think, I think the character is probably described as someone that, um, has more time for the dead than the living. He, he, he mm. enjoys his time about, uh, around the dead, uh, creatures and the science that he works on rather than his time around explaining it to people who don't understand, uh, what he's, what mm. he's involved in. But, uh, yeah, definitely taking a bigger step for, uh, for Victor in season two. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's kind of, I, 
I can't see it ending well between Broner and uh, Caliban um, at all, to be honest. I, I think um, the, the, there's something there where Caliban thinks that this is being done for him, and I'm not entirely sure that Victor is wanting to do it for him. You know, their, their relationship is rocky mm. anyway. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that kind of progresses, uh, to be honest. Again, I think, you know, I, I, I like the kind of, the fact that Caliban says good night creator, you know, to the, again, the man of science, mm-hmm. uh, and not wholly so, but, um, I, I find that really quite interesting. Um, and of course we see that he has actually changed or updated his process. So she is now in a water bath. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and we, you know, we, we learn a little later that this is to reduce the effects of the electricity mm-hmm. um, so that they can recover quicker. Yeah. Um, because when, you know, the lightning comes and the, the storm finally arrives, um, I, I find that really kind of great moment. It's really energetic. It really kind of mirrors the idea of lightning uh, with the two of them rushing around to get all the connectors done. Mm-hmm. Um, that lightning in a bottle element. Um, and then she begins to uh, sort of get reanimated and sort of rises out of, of the water a bit like um almost like the the lady in the lake a bit uh, in that sense from king arthur but um i i just thought this was really nice um and and the urgency of caliban saying let her live you know that hit yeah. shouting up at the sky mm-hmm. um that this you know he's pinning all his hopes on broner and and assuming that she will have affection for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where, um, even without the interjection of Victor, um, that could end badly um, if she has no feelings towards him. But the, there's something suspicious around Victor, certainly with his, his pre-animation sort of uh, behavior around mm-hmm. uh, Broner to suggest that, yes, he's doing it. It looks like he's helping Caliban because otherwise he'll be killed or people he love will be but he's not totally on board with helping out his yeah. first creation yeah yeah i found there there to be a little um a little murky as you're mentioning in there john because it isn't as clear cut as you as you mentioned as well um it was funny i was thinking as you were as you were um recounting it uh, yeah he did have those monologues with the um with Brenner's corpse while she was in there mm-hmm. but at the same time he he does ask caliban John Clare, you know, if I do this for you, will you, you know, does that release me from your, you know, your constant stalking? So mm. it, it seemed like he really wants to do it for, for Caliban yeah. to, to kind of get him off his back. But at the same time, he's kind of doing it for himself. So there's a yeah. little bit of conflict there. Exactly. Um, and it's which one, I mean, obviously it, it, the, the latter is, is more important to him mm-hmm. because he kind of pursues that. But, yeah. um, I found that a little, it's like I was a little confused then because, mm-hmm. And I loved um, Caliban's response to that as well, saying, um, you know, you might as well ask, you know, can you get your soul ripped apart from you or something? Yeah, you know, we're yeah. all bound on the same wheel of pain. Yeah. I love that. I love the language that they yeah. use with each other. It, mm-hmm. it really rings true to the characters because they're both very 
um, poetic and, and very artistic uh, in that sense. Yeah. And, and going back to that point, it's, it's hilarious that, yeah, John did pick um, John Clare as his name because mm-hmm. he's so well read, you, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and he loves, and that's all he can come up, can come up with is, yeah. is, is a little funny. Yeah. But yeah, um, I found that thing with Victor, there were two conflicting things there. I, I think John Logan's done well to, to kind of balance it, but like in retrospect, thinking about it, it does potentially conflict with each other. Yeah. His thoughts of Victor. It's almost like Victor wants to do it and get it done, so he gets Caliban off his back, but he certainly doesn't yeah. want to make it easy for Caliban um, with Broner. It's almost that kind of... It's like a spiteful. Mm. It's like, I've done it, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Right. Now she's yours, and good luck with that kind of thing. But I do um, think Caliban's response probably does influence that. As you, as you say, Caliban responding, saying... What would Frankenstein be without his monster? I'll be here and I'll always be close no matter what you do for me yeah. kind of thing. Like if he'd said, you know, I'll, I'll create your bride. You can take her and off you go to, off we're going to go to Spain and we'll leave you alone. <laughs> maybe Victor Frankenstein <laughs> would kind of go, actually, maybe I have an impetus to do this now, but all that's going to happen is they're going to be living down the road looking in on them every day. That's not great. Yeah. Why, why Spain? <laughs> I don't know. I was like, ye oldie Costa del Sol? <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually think Ethan said that that's where he was going to go, didn't he? Is that one of the places he said he was going yes, to go to Spain that's and right. then to yeah. Romania, I think was the okay. two places. So there, it was in my head. I was uh, thinking Nice, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Off to France. Uh, everybody fits in France. Be grand. Uh, that was it for uh, my big note moment for the episode. Uh, guys, any other notes that we haven't talked about for episode one? I'm sure there's hundreds. <laughs> First off, I mean, I thought the, the the opening to the season was brilliant. For me, there was a lot of uh, kind of, I don't know, metaphorical meaning to it because it's not really focused on like the snow and, and the weather that much other than for me, other than the, the very beginning when mm-hmm. Vanessa's walking through that beautiful pure white snow. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's a kind of, it's symbolic of after season one, there's been a certain level of, of, of closure and, and, um, you know, resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we see Evelyn Poole start kind of chanting away and, and, and kind of messing up with Vanessa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought it was a very beautiful opening. The way it was shot as well in that white snow, it was, it was just yeah. really nice. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Really, really good start. It's like it's like a new clean slate, I think, uh, would be mm, the way exactly. starting off a new season that way. And I love that it doesn't take long. <laughs> you know, it's only about, what, about no. 30 seconds and then suddenly you have Evelyn Poole <laughs> chanting in the background going, I'm right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very yeah. cool. Uh, John, anything from, from um, you? It was just, I suppose, to close out um, season one a bit, actually, that uh, Malcolm and his wife Gladys do bury uh, Mina, mm-hmm. um, and that they are still both married, um, importantly here, that uh, Malcolm's still married to Gladys, but in no way, shape, or form is this a loving marriage. Um, yeah, I think she certainly makes that clear where she goes, we have no more children for you to save or kill. Mm. Um, and, you know, both Peter and Mina now six feet under. John Logan could have done a zombie Penny Dreadful <laughs> season three um, <laughs> where Mina and Peter come out to haunt Gladys mm. and uh, do the zombie apocalypse in Victorian Britain. Maybe. That would have been kind of interesting. I have a feeling yeah. that they're still haunting Malcolm. Well, like, no, exactly. Um, and that was the only thing between them was their children, I suppose. Um, but that mm. they are together because, again, they're... You know, even though we've talked about things like the the brothels and the illegal dog fighting previously, there is still a, a social acceptability here, and, and to prevent 
um, perceived or real um, slight on their names, they are staying together for mm-hmm. for for social status, effectively. Yeah. And I think this is something that definitely yeah. comes through again in these first four episodes, which um, I found really interesting. And yeah. um, that you know, it's that contradiction in Victorian society of, of this quite moralistic and um, uh, you know very old school now as we would see it it's almost the idea of dowries and and marrying into land and titles and wealth uh, and we have a lot of that still here and just the social restraints that that puts on people mm-hmm. yet at the same time there is this exploration of of, of more narcissistic and and um sort of uh, activity is less constrained by the 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 parables of the the new and old testament <laughs> i suppose i like it i like it yeah i think i think it's one of those things with within victorian society that you can basically do whatever you want as long as it doesn't affect your standing in society so uh, so you can set up a dog fighting ring if you want to as long as the regular public don't know that you've just done that kind of thing exactly so, uh, yeah so it's a very intriguing uh, look back at the time yeah, I mean, I, I find Malcolm such a complicated character. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just there's so many layers to him, so many um, contradictions to him as well. And, and a large part of it is, as you mentioned, this social standing, him remaining true and, and being bound to be married with Gladys. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is no love. He mentions it time and time again. There's no love between them anymore. That's effectively just dead. And, and the fact that he has been out to save his children yet he's the one that's killed them mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it's it's such a, a strange thing to kind of get your head around what is going on inside this guy's head yeah. um because uh, there is a sense of duty that he has but there's also the, a, a, a sensibility that yeah. he has as well i mean like with mina being what she was um you know so he had to he had to do that so i don't know mm-hmm. i just find out of everyone he's the most complicated to to really crack and to I'd, I'd hate to be him. Out of all of them, I'd hate to be kind of him. Yeah, right. And I, I think as well, you know, it just that relationship, even though it, it, it's very peripheral, is probably really important because we do have Madame Carly in her um, den, I suppose, her, her coven, um, saying, sort of giving the orders that she will go after Vanessa and Sir Malcolm. Uh, whilst her her daughters um, should focus on the lichen of mm-hmm. of, of, Ethan. of Ethan, you know yeah. they 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 definitely know that he is something supernatural mm-hmm. um, and not just pure uh, human. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Shall we leave it there for our discussion on episode one of Penny Dreadful season two? Yeah, that's all the notes I've got. Excellent. Yeah. We'll take a little break and we'll have a little message from uh, Ray of the Into the Night, a Moonlight podcast. No, the Moonlight podcast. That's correct. <laughs> we'll be back later this week with our discussion about season two, episode two, Verbus Diablo. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you the loony listener with a podcast honoring marvel's very own moon knight so join me and a host of others at into the night a moon knight podcast follow us on facebook twitter and instagram or support the show by becoming a patreon member into the night a moon knight podcast it's time to get your conchu on
This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're back with Penny Dreadful, Season 2, Episode 1, Fresh Meat. Fresh hell. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking of. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I'm giving you that written fresh fresh meat on my finger. <laughs> taking an egg this morning. You do as well. <laughs> he has it. <clears throat> this is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're back with Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episode 1, Fresh Hell. That's a much better name for this episode than Fresh Meat. <laughs> yeah. Oh. 